Canvassing reactions from musicians and music lovers to Richard Strauss's Alpine Symphony, I seem to find the first reaction is almost always the same. People comment on the sheer size and the scope of the forces used. Well, the orchestra is bigger than the one Wagner used in the ring, including a wind machine, thunder machine, cowbells. Then there's the extra offstage brass, bringing the total number of horns, for instance, from eight in the orchestra to twenty. Those twelve extra horns represent hunting horns heard in the distance. It's just one moment in a hugely variegated score, but it's one just about everyone seems to remember. The Alpine Symphony is full of spectacular effects, as well as which there are plenty of clear subtitles which are almost like signposts along a heritage trail. And the total scheme of the work may be the recreation of an alpine climb that Strauss himself made when he was 14. For example, the next section, the entry into the woods. We have rustling strings, rapid up and down bows, suggesting nodding, swaying foliage and long-breathed brass tunes as the walkers take invigorating draughts of mountain forest air. The symphony clearly tells the story of a heroic walk or hike up into the Alps. It's a dawn-to-dusk story, with a splendid view from the summit as its high point. Strauss calls it vision, and there's probably an element of pride in that. The view from the top of an Alp can be splendid enough if the ascent is made by cable car, or even on film. But this vision has been earned the hard way, by sheer muscle power and determination, and so it has the quality of a special revelation. We've got here by ourselves. has earned Strauss's Alpine Symphony a reputation a little bit like one of those glowing Technicolor travel documentaries that appeared a lot in the 60s and 70s. You can almost imagine the sighing, soaring voiceover, perhaps even Strauss's own words, the worship of nature, eternal and magnificent. 
Add to this the fact that this is Strauss's last symphony or symphonic poem, he finished it in 1915, and that at least at first he didn't seem very enthusiastic about it, and it all adds to the strange reputation of the Alpine symphony. Strauss had just finished his opera Der Rosenkavalier and was toying with a few ideas while waiting for his librettist Hugo von Hofmannsthal to come up with a new plan for another opera. Strauss wrote about this to von Hofmannsthal. I am waiting for you and in the meantime worry myself with a symphony which actually gives me less enjoyment than shaking cockchafers out of a tree. Does this suggest that the Alpine symphony was a bit of a chore? Well, no. When Strauss returned late in 1914 to the work, it was with a completely new enthusiasm, and he then completed this massive score in just a hundred days. Now he's writing quite differently to von Hofmannsthal. You must hear the Alpine Symphony. It's a really fine piece. To another he fired off the note, Now at last I've learnt to orchestrate. This from one of the acknowledged masters of orchestration. Even the somewhat agnostic Benjamin Britten called him the old magician. So we have splendours from the orchestra to compare to the wonders of nature in the Alpine Symphony. Strauss, in fact, could see the Alps from his home in Garmisch, and no doubt made the journey in his mind many times after that initial experience in his teens. Nowhere do you get more of a vivid sense of this than at the beginning. This is the depiction of dawn under the shape of the Alp, the intended target for the walk, emerging through cloud and darkness. Strauss creates a remarkable effect here, a kind of three-octave tone cluster for strings. He has a bassoon descend a scale of B-flat minor. And that scale carries on on the bassoon down through another two octaves. As it does so, the strings shadow the descent, gradually, one by one, holding each note of the scale. It's a bit like playing it on the piano with the sustaining pedal held down, except the strings don't have to fade and decay like the piano. Here it is again. So at the end there, we have every single note of the B-flat minor scale held over three octaves. It creates an extraordinary acoustic shimmering effect as the harmonic overtones of the notes quietly clash. Through this mist, four trombones and a bass tuba, we can clearly make out the massive shape of the mountain emerging, taking form in front of the spectator.
that stirring in the basses at the end there gradually rises up through the whole orchestra as a massive long crescendo until the strings and the woodwind are teeming with activity. It's a kind of dawn chorus in a way, but spread over a much wider tonal range and spectrum than the actual song of birds, until eventually it reaches the unmistakable moment of sunrise. Strikingly, that amazing sunrise moment is actually based on the same descending scale as the misty figure of the opening. But now it's in the major key, radiant and massive. It's not just that Strauss uses a huge orchestra. He knows how to deploy each of his forces, where to put each instrument so that it speaks best. And it creates a magnificent vision of a mountain now bathed in light. The details on that mountain are now as awe-inspiring as the sense of scale. Now, one of the features of the dense coniferous forests of the Alps is that they're full of surprises. Things emerge suddenly into sight and into hearing, like the waterfall Strauss's heroic hikers encounter next. We have a wonderful range of effects here, cascading woodwind and strings, glittering harps and celeste. Essentially, this isn't new. You can hear a similarish kind of tone picture in the Alpine Fairy movement from Tchaikovsky's Manfred Symphony, also inspired by an Alpine waterfall. Tchaikovsky's portrait is rather beautiful, but Strauss takes this to completely new levels of complexity. You can almost see the different strands of light, the rainbow effects, symbols, glockenspiel and triangle, multi-divided strings. You can hear what a complex thing a waterfall is. The play of light can create optical illusions, apparitions. This alpine tour isn't all picturesque delights. There are trackless thickets, places where the path fails. Then, just before the summit, comes a dangerous moment crossing the ice. Do you remember the striding forward motif from the beginning of the climb? We can now hear how that same motif picks its way tentatively across the ice, with a few graphic slips and slides across the way. Tension mounts, then the unmistakable cry of relief. We've made it. Mm -hmm. 
And from that hold-your-breath stillness emerges a sense of immense space, and the tiny broken oboe phrases suggest the wandering spectator. Perhaps this mountain-conquering walker feels humbled, and it's from this that we build to the culminating climax of vision. But now the descent must begin, and we can now sense the philosophical as well as the pictorial element. Strauss had long been inspired by the works of Friedrich Nietzsche, and when he was originally contemplating the work, he even considered naming the symphony after Nietzsche's book, The Antichrist. It's an important point to stress here, by the way, that Antichrist in German doesn't actually mean Antichrist. It would be Antichristus in that case. Antichrist means anti-Christian. And Strauss was certainly anti-religious. He even wrote about the underlying philosophy of the symphony. Moral purification by one's own efforts, liberation through work, worship of eternal glorious nature. And he added a more human subtext, that all great political and religious movements can be truly fruitful only for a limited period. In the end, the Antichrist notion was dropped, but there are strong hints of the transient, the transformative, which remain in the Alpine Symphony. We began in night, and tonight we must return, and the way down is as arduous as the way up, with added problems. At one point, the mountain theme from the very beginning, which we glimpsed through the mists, now roars out on massed brass. Then the mists from the beginning begin to rise again from the depths, this time spelling danger. The sun begins to sink gradually, and there follows a section called Elegy. Splendid visions don't last. One can't live forever in the heights. There has to be the descent to reality, the realization of transience.
And there's worse to come. Do you remember that cloudy opening, like the holding down of the notes of a piano scale? Now Strauss brings it back again, this time with rumbling drums and shrieks from the woodwind. The mist and cloud are turning dangerous. A storm is brewing. This can turn even the best marked alpine path into a perilous assault course. So there we have not just an organ, but an orchestral wind machine underlying the sheer force of nature's hand. The storm finally abates. The mountain theme is now grand, but hushed on brass. We have a high piano B-flat for the first trumpet, which is a really difficult one to achieve. That sense of power only just kept in check. And again, the orchestra is joined by the organ. Strauss may have proclaimed himself a Nietzschean anti-religious type, but one can't avoid the religious suggestions of the organ as the sunset begins and the memories of the elegy section are heard in the violins again. Now we have sunset, and the elegiac coda follows. This is still more elegiac than the passage Strauss actually called elegy. The symphony ends as it began, with that slowly descending scale, the shimmering string cluster, and the mountainous brass theme sounding quiet but massive through it. Human life passes away, the mountains endure. So. Overall, what have we here? 24 hours in the company of magnificent nature? Or perhaps that cradle-to-the-grave analogy that I hinted at just there? Or maybe there's also something deeper and more personal. 
Strauss began the Alpine Symphony in 1911. That was also the year of the death of his friend and greatest rival as composer and conductor, Gustav Mahler. Theirs was a complex relationship, but it was an important one. It's striking that Strauss's last symphonic work should be his vastest, and on a subject Mahler also loved, revered, the almost religious sense created by the Alps, which apparently appealed just as much to the declared anti-religious Strauss as to the God-seeking Mahler. But let's also remember the date of the Alpine Symphony's completion, 1915. World War I had already begun, and the world would soon change beyond recognition. Perhaps this adds another kind of resonance to the sunset and night imagery at the end, and possibly also those reverberations in the storm section. Perhaps, like many, Strauss felt the need to dwell on something enduring, nature, and especially those almost supernaturally solid mountains. In a world of terrifying turbulence, it's comforting to remember that there are some things that don't change. <laughs>